From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll explore John Goethe's Milwaukee, a new book by the renowned historian. Then we'll speak with local author Nevo, who is one of this year's literary talents being added to the Wisconsin Writers Wall of Fame. I've been thinking about that nine-year-old a lot as we go through this process and as I learned that in fact it is a physical wall where my name will actually be sitting. And the, the phrase that comes to mind is, all I've ever wanted is for libraries to like me. Plus we'll meet the Milwaukee siblings who have impressed judges and a national audience on the show Lego Masters. I'm all things Milwaukee um, and I just love the city. It, it definitely uh, came across, I think, in our bills and several of the challenges in Lego Masters. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. For fans of Milwaukee history, there's one name that comes to mind as the leading expert on the city, John Goethe. He's written extensively about the city in his columns in the Journal Sentinel, his many books on the city, and even in the documentary series, The Making of Milwaukee. But his new guide is perhaps the project most closely based on his life's work. John Goethe's Milwaukee is a guidebook to the city that provides detailed maps of routes through different Milwaukee neighborhoods. Goethe joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share more. How did you develop this guide? This began as a tour that I was leading for uh, nonprofit groups, especially back in the 1970s, and did that for close to 50 years, and developed a route that I thought really kind of showed off Milwaukee as most characteristic. And I always had, it wasn't quite a bucket list, but I knew that as I took people around the city, uh, all this knowledge would kind of die with me if I, if I didn't have you know, some way of getting this into the public domain. So this project was born probably a year, two years ago, uh, and it was essentially a means of downloading things I'd learned uh, into a format that people could take the tour on their own. That's what it, pretty much what it amounts to. So in some ways, this is a project that started in the 1970s, uh, but these are new maps, and a lot of the sites are relatively new, I would say. One that sticks out in my mind is Versity. Uh, that's one that was sure. listed in there. Uh, but many of them, the majority of them, are historical sites. They are. And I think it's it's important to underline that uh, just as you can't step into the same river twice, you can't tour the same city twice. Uh, it's always changing. Uh, and what I said at the introduction to this, the guidebook, John Gerda's Milwaukee, uh, was that I hope that someday people would look at this book you know, dusted off, you know, 50 years from now, and look at it the same way I look at the WPA writer's guides from the 1930s, you know, kind of a take on a vanished city, but one that's pretty fascinating, you know, just kind of to see how much change there's been. And what it underlines is the basic dynamism of the city as an organism, uh, which I think is always fascinating, you know, in Milwaukee and everywhere else. Now, uh, there are so many neighborhoods in the city of Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. It would be impossible to have a guide of, of this size, of this kind, and get to every neighborhood. Uh, how did you decide which neighborhoods to include in the guide? It was a matter of looking at uh, a, a blend of manageability and variety and diversity. Uh, so certainly you got to start downtown. That's where the, the hearth, the heart uh, of Milwaukee is. Uh, 
And you certainly have to do west side, north side, east side, south side. You know, so you, you, you kind of begin with those cardinal points and look at what you can do in a half day and say this is kind of the, the mix of neighborhoods and landmarks that's going to show people you know, what, what Milwaukee is, who Milwaukee is. Well, and is that the goal that someone's going to take this guide and really spend the day with it and go through all of these neighborhoods? Uh, my intention, my hope is uh, that people, you know, if, you, if you're on a bike, probably best spend over, over a couple of days. Uh, but you can do this in a half day in a car uh, w- without a, a great deal of trouble. Probably don't start at rush hour. Although in Milwaukee, some of the, the bus tours I lead would be after work. Uh, and we leave at 5 and get back at, I don't know, 7.30 or 8. And Milwaukee is such a manageable city, such a human-scale city, that you can do that. You know, in Chicago, <laughs> it would be completely impossible. So yes, I think this should be uh, one experience, and people can certainly, you know, it's th- this is linear, so you can you can chop it up into as many segments as you want. You know, spend spend an hour every Saturday, kind of poking around around town. Uh, so I think people may do it uh, sequentially, or they may do it all in all in one gulp. Uh, but my my hope is that they kind of come back with a an enlarged sense of what Milwaukee is and, again, who Milwaukee is, and also kind of a sense of uh, the diversity and the vitality. Uh, as I said at near the end of the tour, uh, there's, there's no section of Milwaukee that this tour touches on that does not have some signs of new life, uh, energy, you know, dynamism again. This guide is largely specific routes through neighborhoods. There are maps for each neighborhood and uh, instructions, you know, turn left at this street, pull over here or there. What do you think that kind of specificity gives to a person who's exploring the city? I think it provides kind of a through line from which they can deviate. Uh, So you start with, you know, pretty much it's, it's it's a real sloppy figure eight. You know, so it kind of winds around downtown, west, north, and east, and comes across uh, through the third ward into Walker's Point, south side Bayview. Uh, so I think uh, it provides a, essentially a, maybe, I don't know, kind of like the armature for a sculpture. You know, it's kind of the, it's, it's the outline, it's the, it's the bones, it's the skeleton uh, of a, uh, an urban experience. Uh, but certainly, you know, if, if people want to get lost... They, they, they should absolutely feel free to do so, and that, that can often be rewarding. But what this does is, I hope, uh, gives people some confidence that you can get from here to there <laughs> without getting too, uh, too, too mixed up, uh, too lost. Fairly manageable in a, in a city like Milwaukee. Right, exactly. Uh, now, of course, this is a guide that is specific, does have maps, does include specific sites, uh, but... It also includes just information about the neighborhoods themselves. How, how much would you say this balances what is visible and what is, you know, invisible in the neighborhood, kind of the history, the things that were there? Good question. I think the, the emphasis here is, is very pronouncedly kind of on the human side of the city. You know, so it's about the people who lived and live and I both lived and live, you know, in, in all these neighborhoods. Uh, so the, the, I've always said the past, uh, history is why things are the way they are. The past and present are always kind of commingled. So I think when people see, they go down to Pigsville and they say, you know, here we are on the Nominee Rivers right here and we've got some sort of work, working class housing. Uh, but it kind of takes you back to kind of what the... Uh, what the origin story is, uh, why that neighborhood is named the way it is, why people settled there in the first place. 
And as well, I think people could read this uh, without, like, this could be armchair touring as well. Uh, so there are kind of capsule histories of Milwaukee's black community, uh, Milwaukee's Latino community, uh, the Polish South Side, or the German North Side. So there are, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a distillation of things I've learned over the last 50 years. There are a lot of neighborhoods that people are going to be familiar with. There's going to be, you know, downtown. Most people have been downtown, Bayview, Walker's Point. What are some of the neighborhoods that you're really excited for people to explore where they haven't maybe been before? It depends on where you live. You know, so Southsiders <laughs> sure. should know the North Side and Northsiders should know the South Side. You know, <laughs> we should have that kind of reciprocity going on. Uh, but when I would do the uh, the bus tours or uh, other vehicles from, from trolleys to lim- limousines, Pigsville was always a hit because you can't get there unless you're going there on purpose or you're lost, you know, down there in the Menominee Valley. That was always uh, a treat. And there are, what, 11 streets there, seven end and dead ends. Uh, so you can see the whole thing. <laughs> you, can, you can do a, a comprehensive overview uh, of Pigsville. Uh, but some of the ones that uh, I think are, are, are fascinating, you get around Lindsay Heights on the north side, uh, you know, kind of see the, the, the German origins and then becoming an African-American community uh, over the years. And some of the developments on the north side, Halyard Park, uh, Bronzeville, uh, Brewers Hill, Harambe, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. And I think people who have not been there for a while uh, kind of say, oh, this is there's something interesting going on. And conversely, uh, on the south side, uh, one story that always, you know, got people sort of say, what? Was my grandmother was raised on 14th Street, a Polish immigrant family. And on her lot, there were five houses and 27 kids, you know, so (laughs) three baseball teams. And that never fails to get a what? So so that that is very apparent in the landscape. You know, you see all these Polish flats on the south side, and you say, my, that was an extraordinarily dense neighborhood that had an extremely strong sense of place. For sure. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. My pleasure, Joy. Milwaukee is where we were before we came here. John Gerda is a Milwaukee historian and the author of many books on the topic, including his latest, John Gerda's Milwaukee. The book is out now and available at several local shops, including Boswell Books, Historic Milwaukee, and the Historical Society gift shop. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. The library is more than just books. For some, it's a third space to relax, read, research, work, or, in the case of local author Nevo, write award-winning books. Vo is one of three authors being added to the Milwaukee Public Library's Wisconsin Writers Wall of Fame at their central library branch. The wall pays tribute to a spectrum of literary talents whose work has been influenced by their life and experiences here in Wisconsin. To share more about the history of the Writer's Wall of Fame and to learn what it means to the author herself, I'm joined by librarian Beth Gabriel and author Nevo. Beth Gabriel and Nevo, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having us. So Beth, can you share some of the background and history of the Milwaukee Public Library's Wisconsin Writer's Hall of Fame? Absolutely, I can. So the project has been around for a while. The wall was launched in 1997, and the point was to honor writers who have had literary impact, who have had their impact in part by being either born here in Wisconsin or have had lived here a significant amount of time. 
Um, so we identified people that have lived here, worked here, played here, written here, and had a Wisconsin presence. Um, so that's how the wall started. And a committee is formed as time allows and as time passes, because not every year is there like, oh, we need to add a person every single year. So there's no kind of rules or structure on when names are added. So the um, supervising administrator is Marion Royal from Central Library. She is the public services area manager. So she, um, along with some of our other staff, formed a committee. They went out in search of folks from kind of the Milwaukee literary scene. There was five people from the committee and they were tasked with finding and identifying names and then narrowing the list down. So this year, three names were chosen and they're going to be installed shortly on the wall at Central Library. And we have one of those three with us today. Ni, you are being added to the wall. How did you feel when you first got word that you're the latest addition to the Wall of Fame? Uh, I was deeply excited and also very impressed because I got this lovely little note in my email, um, very sweet and very discreet, saying, Hi, do you work with Nevo? Um, we'd love to have her on the wall, and but we'd love to surprise her with it. And my response was, I'm sorry, my staff here is like me and my cat. The cat's out of the bag, <laughs> unfortunately, but thank you so much. I am so excited. And I really love what Beth had to say about investigating and observing and looking for authors because... I work a lot of times at the East Branch Library close to downtown here, and I just sort of love the idea of as I'm sitting there like a pile of rags staring at my computer that there is like like a team of scientists tracking me and observing me through like, through, you know, like the boreal forests. And that's just <laughs> lovely. It's amazing. Um, it's really just cool that the literary committee members, like, they do. They go through and they look through things, and they're not just pulling names solely on oh, this best-selling New York Times listed person who has published 5 million items, you know, like these are upcoming fresh voices, voices that are thrilling all of us, like you, me, or somebody that has had an impact in the past and might no longer be with us, which is one of the names. Right. And Beth, I was wondering, could you give us a few examples of other notable authors that are featured that kind of exemplify this range? Yeah, absolutely. So the year the wall was first put up, which was 1997, um, it is designed and maintained by Conrad Schmidt Studios, which you might be familiar with their local company. Um, there was actually 12 names put up that first year because they kind of went through and identified a lot of legacy folks. So Aldo Leopold is on the wall, Carl Sandberg, the poet, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Thornton Wilder. Um, in 1998, Marguerite Henry was added to the wall. And then, you know, we all kind of have these feelings about what is a literary voice of merit, what kind of literature has merit. 1999, Lois Ehler was added to the wall. She's a children's illustrator and picture book writer. So she's, you know, very much known for her art and her writing, and she was very much wanted to be added to that wall. Um, we have historian John Gerda on the wall, added in 2000. He's a preeminent Milwaukee historian writing nonfiction. So I really, as working here, I'm thrilled that there's this kind of breadth of folks on there. But I this year, I was super excited that two of the names, so Nevo and then Jean DeWeese, were added because they are part of... Um, 
not just like fancy literature, but they you, you work in a genre. And he writes fantasy, science fiction, genre. Gene DeWeese wrote Star Trek show tie-in novels, which I thought was super duper cool. <laughs> this honor and the people who are on this wall at Central Library, it recognizes that the writer's work has been influenced by their life and experiences here in Wisconsin. Now, Nee, you were born in Illinois and you currently live here in Milwaukee. How do you say that Wisconsin or Milwaukee has shaped your life and in turn shaped your writing? Uh, let's see. I moved up to Milwaukee in about, tw- about 2007. I was following a girlfriend and that didn't last, but uh, Wisconsin seems to have. And I love living here. I love living by the lake. And I, I'm not sure if uh, Beth mentioned it earlier, but I have written a fair number of the works that I have published right at the East Side Library, as a matter of fact. So I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm just this pile of rags that's sitting by the big windows, watching the people go by, wishing that maybe I had picked another career sometimes or that man that's a pretty jacket I don't I should I should get one like that you know and that's that's my experience at the library which is that it's a very wonderfully welcoming place that supports its local literary community which is me when I'm having a bad day as far as I can tell so Mm -hmm. um there are a lot of things that brought me to Wisconsin and have uh made me decide to stay and I'm just having honestly it's because I'm having the best time here I love that so much I just love it and like, I will tell you, as a person who works at the library, I I truly don't know what people are working on when they're working at my branch. I just, you're there and that's what you're supposed to be there for. We're supposed to be this third place that you can get out of your house, get out of your office, come and do work, be surrounded by a vibrant community of folks and just use the Wi-Fi and sit in a chair that isn't going to let you like crash <laughs> oh oh do you know i um this is kind of fun i don't know if i've ever mentioned it to you guys but um one of the first calls i ever had with my agent uh diana fox and my editor at tour.com roshi chen was actually in one of the multi-purpose rooms i booked like one of the private mm-hmm. rooms you can just book there and something I, something terrible was happening to my apartment that weekend and i was like hey can i borrow one of the rooms and they're like yes yes you can i'm like perfect gotta go look like a professional and you guys are very helpful with that yeah we do try and those study rooms are super popular so if anybody else wants to come write a literary masterpiece like one of Nee's books you are welcome to go to our website mpl.org and book one yourself um all of our 13 locations have private rooms I love all these intertwined connections and how it feeds back to you know our lovely library system now, Nee, your books are described as genre-bending, they're surreal, fantastical, emotional, you draw on inspiration from eras like the Jazz Age or pre-coded Hollywood, and you center women's and queer voices. And this is just little snippets and highlights of what other reviewers and other people have said about you. But can you explain in your own words a bit more about what your main inspirations are that drive your work? Or do you have like a central mission each time you seek out to write a new story? What's your process like? Uh, Let's see. As Beth pointed out, I am in fact a genre writer, and I love being a genre writer. I love I love working in spec fic, among other things, because in a way that I think that is uh, more integral to our genre than necessarily say lit fic is. In spec fic, we are all having this conversation with each other, which comes from which I mean I think that's a tradition that goes back about a hundred years. Given you know the old school sci fi fantasy magazines, you know the old list serves all that fun stuff. And 
in so many ways, it's a community of people who have a ball and are tossing it back and forth and sort of like looking at it while we have it and going, you know what I could do? And that's so much the crux of SpecFic for me is like, what can I do? Or why haven't, hasn't anyone done this before? Or how can I specifically have a, have a good time with this? Like, I joke that one of my uh, interests is ruining it for everyone, you know, <laughs> and um, that, I mean, that's a joke. I want, I want people who read my book to have a good time, but if you ruin something just a little bit, you can let someone else come in and fix it. And that's a great way to keep the conversation going just to be that much of a little jerk. And that's a really natural thing for me. And it's really good if it doesn't spill off out of my friends and my loved ones and instead hits like a greater literary community. And for any listeners who might not be familiar, spec fic, speculative fiction? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Gotcha. So Beth, you've been on Lake Effect before talking about one of Nee's books, Siren Queen. And as you mentioned previously, you've both had event discussions, both virtually and in person. So for you, what are some of the things that stand out to you about Nee's writing and the relationship that's stemmed around it? And, you know, this whole big relationship that you all share with MPL. I have to say, so Siren Queen, like, honestly, was just, it knocked my socks off in a way where I it was this glamorous Hollywood of the past, but with these monsters. And I'm like, these monsters could just be the people of that time. I feel like it was just fantastical enough to go, okay, this isn't my world, but it's so close to our world that it like is unsettling. And it made me think, and I it was inspired me to go back and like read and look up certain, you know, like Hollywood studios and the Me Too movement and things where, you know, women in Hollywood and the power that these studio heads have. And it was just like so absorbing to sit down and read that book. And these books are not very long in page count, but they're long on impact. Your words are spare, but they hit you. And it's just, it's just very good. Me, with being added to Central Library's Writer's Wall of Fame, and as Beth mentioned, along with Ayad Akhtar and the late Jean Deweese this year, what does it mean to you to not just be recognized, but you're going to have a physical place in Central Library for as long as it stands? That is utterly terrifying. It's weird to say coming to terms with something that is such an enormous honor, but I mean, Mostly what I've been thinking about lately is myself at the age of uh, about nine or so, which is, that was my very first visit to a real library. Like, I'd read about them before, but I'd never gotten to go. And, you know, this was back in Peoria, where I'm a, t- I'm a child. And I was just so impressed that this whole place was for me. And, and it wasn't. I was nine years old. There, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have been wandering into some of the more adult sections that I inevitably did as an unsupervised nine-year-old. But... I'm thinking about that nine-year-old a lot as we go through this process and as I learned that in fact it is a physical wall where my name will actually be sitting and the, the phrase that comes to mind is all I've ever wanted is for libraries to like me <laughs> and I think at the age of nine I didn't realize there were people involved it was like I want the edifice of the library to like me <laughs> and um, that's what that feels like it feels like the library <laughs> likes me and that's wonderful. And I have to mention, too, you know, the names on the wall, like, I think it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people to see your name, Nebo's, on that wall. And I got Akhtar's name on that wall. The first author of color was only inducted in 2018, which is John Ridley Jr. So we're coming further here 
we want to show that Wisconsin has literary talent from all voices, not just Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much, Beth and Nee, for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you a little better. And Nee, congratulations again. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, come on down and visit. The name should be up by mid-December 2023. While you're there, you can check out the Americans in the Holocaust Traveling Exhibit, which is at Central as well, through January 5th. Beth Gabriel is a librarian at Milwaukee Public Library's East Branch, and Nevo is a local author who is one of three people added to MPL's Wisconsin Writers Wall of Fame. You can see Nevo's name on the wall at Central Library now, and you can also explore past books and beyond segments at wuwm.com. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn why holiday movies have skyrocketed in popularity. But first, the Milwaukee siblings who are competing on the show Lego Masters talk about what got them into building and what we might be able to expect from tonight's finale episode. The theme of our final build was the theme we used in our previous challenge. That's all I will say, though. Our last build really represents us, you know, so tied to Milwaukee, tied to family, it literally represents us. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Building with Legos is a pastime for all ages, but for two Milwaukeeans, their passion for creation led them to being finalists on the TV show Lego Masters. Siblings Paul Wellington and Nalita Nelson grew up playing with Legos together, and both have deep roots in Milwaukee. Paul attended UW-Milwaukee before going on to co-found MKE Black and write a book about Black architecture and culture. Not to be outdone, Nalita is a Milwaukee-based entrepreneur and will be teaching a Lego building class with Milwaukee Recreation starting in January. The season finale airs tonight, and ahead of that, Lake Effect Sam Woods caught up with the siblings to learn more about their Milwaukee roots and how their sibling dynamic has helped and hurt them on the show. You both are finalists on the show Lego Masters, which for those who are unfamiliar with the show, means that you have competed for weeks against other teams to build uh, Lego constructions with a weekly theme, such as, you know, Volcanoes was one, Cirque du Soleil was another. And these builds often last, you know, about like 12 hours, right? These are, these are long, big constructions. But for those who are familiar with the show, they'll know you for your, your thoughtful builds and your attention to detail. Uh, your most recent build was a roller coaster where you had two cars ride the roller coaster kind of mirroring each other and perfectly timed, which honestly, I personally, I didn't think got enough uh, attention from the judges, but but I digress. Um, uh, people familiar with the show will also know that you're from Wisconsin, um, as a few of your builds have incorporated Wisconsin themes. But outside of Legos, you both have deep roots in Milwaukee. Can you tell me more about uh, your connections to the city and, and your memories from growing up here? So I born and raised in Milwaukee. Um, I went to Goza my year for like elementary, middle school. And then for high school, I went to Rufus King, you know, alum, got a shout out for the alums. <laughs> um, and yeah, I feel like both of those schools really helped shape me um, for the person that, that I am today. Um, without 
what I learned there and what was actually like instilled, you know, with the gifted and talented and the IB like curriculum program. Without that, I wouldn't be who I am today, honestly. All right. So I am also from Milwaukee, uh, born and raised there, lived there my entire life until I moved to Ohio last year. But I also went to um, Goldmayer, then I went to Morristown Middle School, and I also went to Rufus King for high school. And after that, I attended UW Milwaukee for uh, both uh, undergrad and graduate school for my degree in architecture. So Lee, I, I, I am raised in Milwaukee, I am all things Milwaukee, um, and I just love the city. It, it definitely uh, came across, I think, in our bills and several of the challenges and local masters. You love Milwaukee, but you moved. How could I have you? My reasons for, I have my reasons. <laughs> well, we'll we'll forgive Paul for the rest of this interview for moving. We'll we'll set that set that aside. But Paul, you mentioned an interest in architecture, but I, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. And not only did your you know is there a connection between your early childhood interest in Legos and later studying architecture at UWM. But you've also wrote a book on architecture um, called uh, Black Built, History and Architecture in the Black Community. Um, and Paul, can you talk a little bit more about kind of how you, this early interest in Legos um, led to this interest in, in architecture and leading you to become a published author in the field? So I received my first Lego set when I was around three or four years old for my birthday. And ever since then, I have not put the bricks down. I've always been building something. And my biggest interest has always been buildings. I love building, whether it's something small like a grocery store or eventually building uh, these very large cities that take up at some point, like even like 50 or so base plates, so very large layouts. I've always enjoyed that. And because of that, uh, that love of Lego, it led to me pursuing a degree in architecture at UWM. So I've always loved the passion and it's always been there. But um, what led to my book being published in 2019 is before that, um, I was not really taught about a lot of the black architects in school. So I started to research on my own and that turned into a, a blog, which I would share periodically about the work of black architects, both uh, locally and throughout uh, the US. And eventually, after a couple of years, that led to a published book, which I'm very proud of to this day still. As you should be. And on the theme of Legos and architecture, a while back, you had this uh, project that got a, some notoriety called Brickville. Can you talk about Brickville and what you built and what you're proud of about it? So Brickville is a microscale city that I built. Uh, I started in 2010, lasted until 2014. And it really it was what I am still well known for. So it was a microscale city. Uh, the larger it became was, I believe it was 68 base plates. Uh, each base plate is 10 by 10 inches. So uh, times that by 68, that's the size of the city. So pretty large, actually. That's a big number. That's a big city. Yeah. It, is, it is massive. Yeah, so it was massive, I should say. Um, so a lot of the buildings uh, in there were inspired from actual buildings. Uh, some in Milwaukee, some in Chicago, some in London. Uh, all buildings that I've experienced in my travels. Um, and... What actually led to me building in that scale is a while back when I was 12 years old or so, uh, I was building a minifix scale house. I wanted it to be all white. However, all I had was these different colored bricks, like the yellows, the reds, the blues. So I built the house with different colors, took it outside, and actually decided to spray paint that all white. And it lasted for about a month or so, and I got bored with it, tore it down, and I have all these various uh, these bricks that are like half white, half other colors. I can't use those again. They're kind of useless at that point. So actually it forced me to start using the smaller elements like the plates and tiles to build cities. So uh, ever since then, back in like 2000, it was this 2000 and 
five or six or so, I've been building these uh, small scale cities uh, based on pieces I had at the time. Yeah, and and Nalita, you're also you know Lego master yourself, and starting this January, you're teaching three Lego building classes at Hamilton High School. Uh, have you have you done this before, or was this kind of just like you know they saw you on Lego Masters and like oh we need to get her, we need her teaching the teaching the youth about building uh, Legos. Now I'm super excited to teach this Lego class coming up in January. Um, I've never actually taught a Lego class. So my job, my previous job, I was a driver's ed teacher. So that way I was able to make connections with like Milwaukee Rec. And I was able to start my own class. Like we all came together. It was like, yeah, this would be a great idea, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm super excited. You know, it's something new and I'm excited to share like what I learned from my brother because literally I wouldn't be able to do Lego if it wasn't for my brother. He taught me since, how I don't know, how long has it been? Like We were building for a while together. We've been building, we built together as kids uh, for what? So I went to high school, basically, or went to college, excuse me. Uh, so a long time, what, 10, 12 baby? years? Yeah, from a baby for me until I was about nine, because, you know, you stingy. You took all the Lego with you. <laughs> I mean, it's mine, though, so I get to keep those. Stay. <laughs> <laughs> I can already see the sibling dynamic you all have here, and it's come up in points, it seems like, in, in the show as well. But can you talk about how that kind of sibling dynamic works in your builds um, on the show? Uh, I think for us, because we actually have not spent that much time together a very long time, like 15 years for us or so. So it was uh, nice to rekindle that relationship, but also we have to figure out uh, how that balance works for us, especially when building with Lego together. Um the first few episodes, we actually struggled with that a lot. Uh, this came out especially during the Volcano episode where we had a rough time uh, bonding. We actually fought a lot, which is not actually on camera, but ever since then, we learned to work together and figure out our strengths and how to best uh, approach bills going forward. For the ball, I know the challenge that one, we actually stopped talking to, to each other for like two hours and they was like, can y'all say something? We looked at each other like, mm-mm. <laughs> Like the like the host came over to the table and it was like you know how's it how's it going one of those kind of like mid challenge check ins and then you were like no not now come back later will literally give us like another three hours okay because this is not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned earlier that both of you have deep roots you know in Milwaukee and growing up here you both mentioned uh, your MPS grads um, Paul you mentioned uh, you attended UWM um, you also co-founded MKE Black which is a uh, directory of black owned businesses um, in the Milwaukee area um, worked at the Milwaukee Public Library and Nalita you own a teeth cleaning business here and as mentioned earlier teaching Lego building classes in Milwaukee so you both have these kind of y'all have both given to the city in kind of above and beyond ways but can you talk about how Milwaukee has influenced your craft when it comes to Legos this can be you know um, memories of growing up here, lasting influences, people you met. I guess, like, how, when we're watching the finale of, of, of Lego Masters and seeing your, your kind of your final build or, you know, re-watching old episodes, um, what aspects of Milwaukee come through in, in your builds? So, honestly, our main goal coming on the show was to represent, well, one of our main goals coming on the show was to represent where we're from. So that's kind of what we wanted to be. We wanted to represent like, hey, just because you might hear one thing about Milwaukee and one thing about people of color in Milwaukee, it doesn't mean everyone's like that, you know? So one bad apple 
doesn't always spoil the bunch. So that's kind of how we we wanted to come in and we wanted to make sure we're representing exactly where we're from. Like I love cheese. Cheese is a part of, you know, Wisconsin. Like what's Wisconsin not cheese? So we just wanted to incorporate in every single build, like, hey, yeah, we're from Wisconsin still. We want you to remember that, you know, throughout the whole entire time. So and for me, not only representing Wisconsin, but also representing my family uh, in the show. For example, in the sound challenge, I represented my son and daughter uh, with the baby as well as the mice too. So I wanted to make sure that I kind of pay homage to not only Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but also my family. And so today, now that you know the show is wrapping up, but I'm curious, what are you both up to now? Um, how are you all spending your days and enjoying this kind of you know newfound fame? So right now I'm actually working at a hospital and I'm in a sterile processing tech. And then hopefully I'm going to move up and, well, I know I'm going to move up, but hopefully I'm going to move up and become a dental assistant for like surgeries and all of that stuff. So, cause that's what I went to college for, for dental assistants. So that'd be great. Um, and then I also want to, you know, do more conventions, spend more time with my brother because, you know, this actually brought us together, which is crazy, but I want to uh, go to like more Lego conventions and stuff with my brother. Um, and, and yeah, so it's just a lot teaching the Lego class. I just got a lot going on. Uh, for me, I've been up to, there's a lot of things tied to the show. So a bunch of uh, Lego meet and greets, those have been great. I had one with my sister Kenosha a few weeks ago and that was really an amazing experience um, at the Bricks and Minifix there. Um, also just doing more conventions, as you mentioned, um, and just building my city, uh, building Brickville. So I just, all things Lego pretty much, yes. And we're also thinking about starting a business too, but you know, you just have to wait and see. Well, on the on the note of teasers, that was really well done, Alita, uh, for, for teaser of future business. But on the note of teasers, the finale for Lego Masters airs tonight. And I know you all can't say how it ends. I'm not going to ask you to say how it ends. I'm not going to get you in trouble with Fox. However, if you can, what is one word that describes the finale airing tonight? Well, what I will say is that the theme of our final build was the theme we used in our previous challenge. That's all I will say, though. Our last build really represents us, you know, so it's tied to Milwaukee, tied to family. It literally represents us. Gotcha. Well, Paul and Nalita, thank you so much for joining me on Lake Effect and uh, good luck in the finale. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> that was Paul Wellington and Nalita Nelson, who are both finalists on Lego Masters Season 4. They spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. You can catch the season finale of Lego Masters tonight on Fox. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then learn why we keep digging out those old holiday films instead of watching something new. A lot of the comfort I think that people get out of those rituals is the fact that they return year after year. And movies that we associate with this time of year do the same thing. That's next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. (laughs) 
This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. There's feel-good movies, and then there's holiday feel-good movies. From classics like White Christmas to the near-constant onslaught of new Hallmark and Lifetime Channel movies every year, wintertime means new holiday films. To help us understand why feel-good romantic holiday movies have skyrocketed in popularity and why classic animated holiday specials continue to stand the test of time, I'm joined by Elena Levine. Levine is a professor of English, media, cinema, and digital studies at UW-Milwaukee. So it is the holiday season, and among the many traditions people hold, everyone nearly without fail has a Christmas movie or two that they watch every single year. So why do holiday movies have such a grip on us and remain popular even if they're, say, decades old? I think for many people, the holiday movies that they watch every year are part of a set of traditions that they and their family have participated in. They're not that different from other kinds of things that people do around the holidays, um, whether that's, you know, more traditional kinds of things like caroling or um, having certain kinds of foods or, you know, less traditional things like going bowling or going to the movies with their families or whatever it might be. Um, It's a time of year of kind of ritual and a lot of the comfort I think that people get out of those rituals is the fact that they return year after year. And movies that we associate with this time of year do the same thing. So many of those movies may be explicitly holiday themed, but there's some, you know, like The Sound of Music is a movie that airs on television every year around, um, you know, late December in the holiday time of year. And it doesn't have much of a, you know, holiday or Christmas specific kind of theme to it. And yet I think a lot of people think of that movie as something that they would watch year to year. Of course, there's others like It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street that have that kind of more Christmas-themed element. But I think all of those are part of that um, comfort that people get. We get this comfort all the time from being able to watch things or experience things over and over again. It's familiar. We know what to expect. But the movie element of it has an additional factor because there's those kind of emotional satisfactions that we get from certain kinds of stories. And these tend to be stories that have a very, you know, heartwarming or life-affirming kind of message to them. So I'd love to talk about a certain subset of holiday movies, and that's the Lifetime and Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. They churn them out like crazy. A lot of the productions in Canada last year, I think Hallmark released 41 movies, which is insane. So what are some of the trademarks of these films that we can spot a mile away? So these are so fascinating to me, their their popularity and how much the, you know, the TV business is clearly invested in doing them. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the stories that these movies tell, they tend to be in the kind of romantic comedy genre, but in a very like wholesome way. They don't have any of the maybe more raunchy elements that some more contemporary romantic comedies tend to. Um, So they're pretty traditional. They tend to have a couple, usually a heterosexual couple, once in a rare while, we've seen a few with same-sex couples who have some sort of, you know, meet cute situation as people like to talk about um, a formula of romantic comedies. And they often 
are set in a small town and kind of idyllic setting that happens to have, you know, perfect wintry weather. <laughs> and there's often um, a way in which, you know, one or both of them is an outsider and they come to the town and they, they meet and eventually fall in love with various, you know, obstacles along the way. Sometimes there's other elements to it. There's a family togetherness element or, a, you know, coming back to one's roots element. You know, there's, there's often, you know, multiple strands, um, but it ends up being a kind of, happy heartwarming love story and uh they're very formulaic they tend to follow the same patterns in almost all of them with slight variations um and people who really love them and watch them a lot and that's again part of the appeal right is that you know what you to expect you know what you're going to be getting you know what it's going to deliver for you and having those you know kind of heartwarming feelings that aren't very taxing that don't you know, pull us into the, you know, real problems and strife of everyday life can be um, really appealing. And I think Hallmark movies in particular show the example of how movies create an idealized world. Like, you know, you're not going to get an unhappy ending, even if they maybe throw a slight curveball <laughs> for Hallmark or Lifetime, like, you know, it's going to turn out okay. Right. And I mean, you know, there's lots of media that we consume for that reason, right, that we want a certain experience, and we want to get a certain satisfaction out of it. And some I mean, you know, talk about sports that way, right? There's like a thrill or you know, of the watching of a, a exciting sports event, and rooting for a team or whatever. Um, and these movies have a satisfaction as well, because we go to them for a particular kind of, you know, emotional experience. And this one is a very non-taxing kind of emotional experience. It It is um, not going to stress you out. It's not going to make you have to think too hard. It's going to make you enjoy a kind of fantasy, as you say, a kind of idealized world that almost nobody actually has, right? Um, and I don't think most people who would watch, who watch these think that this is, um, you know, a, a realistic story or experience for anybody. But um, just getting that sort of fantasy escape is a really rewarding part of watching them. So how has the recent competitive streaming market influenced the holiday movie game? You know, a lot of the times it was just Hallmark, Lifetime, or other made-for-TV movies, perhaps, or like you mentioned, re-airing Sound of Music or other things on network channels. But now we have Hulu, we have Netflix, we have Disney, and they're all creating their own original holiday content, too. Yeah, I mean, I think a sign of how successful and powerful these movies are as kind of product for the TV business is that they've just keep expanding, right? So there's Hallmark and Lifetime who are the sort of originators of doing this kind of thing and have been doing them more and more over the years. Um, and, you know, we could talk about their target audience of women as being especially significant there. Um, and the fact that other kinds of channels and platforms have started to do this as well is, I think, really telling of how a kind of guaranteed success they are in drawing audiences. So Netflix has started to do some of their own, you know, original productions, all these different, you know, exclusive streaming platforms have done it. And then, of course, their streaming platforms like Peacock, for example, has is now carrying all of Hallmark's Christmas movies. Um, and so they are, you know, you have these ways in which as is happening across television, um, this kind of merging together of the more traditional broadcast or cable worlds and the streaming platforms, and they're kind of converging in these ways. And, you know, depending on the streaming platform's economic model, whether they have advertising or subscription only, although increasingly they almost all have an ad supported tier, that is 
see because they want to draw audiences that will be there for their advertisers to address. Or maybe they hope that somebody will, you know, get that subscription in the first place in order to access this content. So we've been focusing mostly on adults here, but of course, holiday movies are the classic animated series. There's lots of movies out there for kids as well, but there are things like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Charlie Brown Christmas, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, My Family's Personal Favorite is a Muppet Christmas Carol. You know, these continue to be widely popular. So why do these movies continue to resonate with generation after generation of audiences? I think those kinds of animated movies are continuing to be popular because, again, you have those like multi-generational family togetherness situations and, you know, finding content that is friendly for all members of the family, especially probably the extremes of the younger and the older is can be challenging in the media environment we now live in where there's so much more you know, adult content available on streamers and such. And so I think that appeal of those is like, oh, we can put on Rudolph or the Muppet Christmas Carol or, you know, whatever it might be and know that nobody's going to be kind of offended or scandalized or that kind of thing. There's also, I surely like with all of this stuff, a big nostalgia factor here, right? Of adults remembering their own childhoods, their own experiences growing up watching these things and then passing them on to new generations. Whether younger generations are as enamored of them, I think is an interesting question, right? Because um, some of the animation is quite dated compared to what people, you know, kids especially today are used to. Um, and kids today are used to such, you know, kind of engaging short form content online that seeing these sort of more stretched out stories using more dated um, animation technology might become a harder and harder sell. But um, there's, you know, there's definitely for now they're hanging on in terms of their appeal. So throughout all of these films and genres and ages that they target, there is the common theme that, you know, it seems like psychologically it's underpinning why we just crave holiday corniness, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, you know, there's there's lots of reasons that we crave that, right? But it um, there's definitely a thing that is appealing to many people. And, you know, maybe there's different varieties of it. There's like the old movies that, you know, you've watched many times that are classics. There's many, many, many instances of these newer made for TV movies and the appeals that they have. And there's the kind of kid associated content, but it all has in common that like, no one's going to get upset. No one's going to get offended. You know how they're going to end. You know that there's going to be a certain kind of um, feeling involved. And that is, you know, is comforting. And, you know, I think, I think this time of year, it's not just about the, I mean, there's a reason that there's so many holidays this time of year that are emphasized, that emphasize warmth and togetherness and family, right, in the dark, cold days of winter. And that is supposed to, you know, give, bring us that kind of warmth and, and comfort, um, just like the lights associated with these winter holidays do. Elena Levine is a UW-Milwaukee professor of English, Media, Cinema, and Digital Studies. We spoke last year. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Susan Bentz and Eddie Morales from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Madernowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Join us again on Monday at noon for a list of books you could give this holiday season. We'll also tell you which restaurants in Milwaukee are closing their doors for good and what's new that's opening. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.